everyone to this day and welcome to this gathered community of Kensington Unitarians here on Zoom. Our Unitarian faith, it welcomes all people of goodwill who seek a faith to guide our steps, to stir our hearts and challenge our thinking. Let's gather to remind the world that it's important to explore the nature of truth it's healthy to be uncertain and not always to have the answer. And it's comforting to make deep connections. Connections with ourselves, connections with one another, and connections with that which we hold to be of greatest worth. So let's take a moment to sense all these connections. As I light this chalice flame and may this simple flame, worldwide symbol as it is of our Unitarian and Unitarian Universalist faith, may it remind us today of the oneness from which all else unfolds. Now, if you're here for the first time today with us on Zoom, a particular welcome to you. I hope you find something of value to you here today. And please do stay afterwards for a chat or drop us an email to introduce yourself if you'd like. Or think about coming to one of our small group gatherings during the week as they're a good way to get to know people and find out more about us as a congregation. And if you are a regular here, well, thank you. Thank you for all that you do to build our sense of togetherness. Even on Zoom here, we're co-creating sacred space, co-creating a sense of community 
So whoever you are, however you are, wherever you have come from and whatever has brought you here, know that you are welcome just as you are. And as we always say, feel free to do what you need to do to be comfortable in this hour. It is lovely to see all your faces in the gallery view and to have a sense of togetherness, but we know that for some, it'll be more comfortable perhaps to keep your camera mostly off and that's fine. And similarly, there'll be places for you to join in if you wish along uh, the way today, but there's no compulsion to do so. You can quietly rest back with our blessing. And, and may this candle that I'm now lighting, may it represent all the joys and the concerns that we might be holding silently in our hearts today. And let's take a moment to think of the issues that we've heard people speak of their personal issues and all their connections with our wider world. All life is represented here, isn't it? The great, the small, the sources of our joys and our terrible anxieties. Let's imagine for a moment that the whole world rests here and that our loving thoughts and our compassion and our, our caring actions may be a comfort and a support to those in need. Let's hold them and each other in compassion and loving kindness. As we move into a time of extended prayer now, which will include some words of remembrance for all those affected by the terrorist attacks of 9-11 some 20 years ago, and the events that followed on from that on the world stage. So let's each do what we often perhaps do to get ourselves in a right state of body and mind for prayer and reflection. Perhaps, perhaps adjust your position so that you're helped to turn inwards. Close your eyes or soften your gaze, whatever helps you must align your heart in some way, be in the right place to be fully present with yourself, with each other, and with this greater life that holds us all. Great spirit of all life and all love be with us now. Remind us that we're part of something greater than ourselves. Nudging us beyond dualities of right and wrong, good and bad. Help us find a way of viewing the complexities of our world so that we know a reality where all is one where each includes all, where separation is a trick of the human mind. This weekend, we remember the terrorist attacks in the United States known as 
we remember too the so-called war on terror which followed. We think of those who lost their lives, their loved ones, or their communities. And we recognize the problems faced in countries such as Iraq and Afghanistan to this day. Surely many of us know too in our own lives, the times when our attempts to do right have caused more difficulties. Many of us struggle to live in right relationship within human societies that are so very imperfect. Many of us yearn, don't we, for a more peaceful, just and creative way of living one with another. Oh, help us to move, to move beyond polarities in our thinking to a place where all is one, one life force inhabiting one planet Earth home with its wondrous diversity of expression of which we are one small element. In a few moments of silence now, I invite you to focus on your particular cares and prayers this day. Great Spirit of all that is, be for us a guiding light. Be for us calm in every storm. Be for us stillness in our turmoil. Let your grace now rest upon us and upon all beings this day and all days. And to that aspiration, let each of us, if we so wish, say, Amen. So may it be. The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell. This reading comes from an interview with Joseph Campbell, the American educator and professor of comparative mythology and religion. He was interviewed by Bill Moyers, who asked, why myths? Why should we care about myths? What do they have to do with my life? Campbell replied, my first response would be, go on, live your life. It's a good life. You don't need mythology. I don't believe in being interested in a subject just because it's said to be important. I believe in being caught by it somehow or other, but you may find that with a proper introduction, mythology will catch you. And so 
What can it do for you if it does catch you? One of our problems today is that we're not well acquainted with the literature of the spirit. We're interested in the news of the day and the problems of the hour. It used to be that the university campus was a kind of hermetically sealed off area where the news of the day did not impinge upon your attention to the inner life and to the magnificent human heritage we have in our great tradition, Plato, Confucius, the Buddha, Goethe, and others who speak of the eternal values that have to do with the centering of our lives. When you get to be older and the concerns of the day have all been attended to and you turn to the inner life, well, if you don't know where it is or what it is, you'll have missed out. Greek and Latin and biblical literature used to be part of everyone's education. Now, when they would, these were dropped, a whole tradition of mythological information was lost. It used to be that these stories were in the minds of people. When the story is in your mind, then you see its relevance to something happening in your own life. It gives you perspective on what's happening to you. With the loss of that, we're really, we've really lost something because we don't have a comparable literature to take its place. These bits of information from ancient times, which have to do with the themes that have supported human life, built civilizations and informed religions over the millennia, have to do with deep inner problems, inner mysteries, inner thresholds of passage, and if you don't know what the guide signs are along the way, you have to work it out for yourself. But once this subject catches you, there is such a feeling from one or another of these traditions of information of a deep, rich, life vivifying sort that our living is deepened through mythology. Thank you for that reading, Pat. Uh, so the, the theme of this morning's service, some of you might know, it's based on the Bible. And I guess that's why I chose this first hymn, which is called um, Isaiah the Prophet. It's about God's yearning for a better world. And it uses some beautiful imagery from the book of Isaiah. We're all going to be muted. So do feel free to join in singing or simply back, sit back and listen to this recording which is from our congregation in Kensington. So you might recognize a cough or a rustle or a scrape of a chair along the floor.
I know um, that quite a few of us are drawn to Sufism as the mystical expression of Islam, and, and particularly to the writings of Halaluddin Rumi, the uh, 13th century Persian poet and teacher. And one of the key, key messages of any mystic path is for us to go beyond polarities in our thinking. The human mind is drawn towards this or that thinking, isn't it? Towards dualities. We associate our identity, at least some of the time, with our preferences and our opinions. Non-duality and mysticism offer a far more expansive view of reality. So we're moving into the meditative part of our gathering now, when after a few words of introduction, we'll hold a couple minutes of silence with our chalice flame video, and that will lead then into a piece of piano music, which you might recognize as based on an African-American spiritual known as being in the storm so long. So I invite you to ready yourself for six minutes or so of, of quiet time. Find um, a comfy position that works for you. This might be the point where you choose to turn off your video if, uh, if you've, that's more restful for you. And some of us at this point like to, to kind of do a, a body scan to see if there are any tensions that we might be ready to release. Sometimes I like to lift my shoulders and roll them back and down. That encourages me then to straighten my back. And you might want like to take one of those deep belly breaths. Breathing into the belly. Letting the breath really settle us and releasing any tension as we breathe out. Allowing the gentle rhythm of our breathing to soften our whole being. Enjoying a sense of sinking down perhaps a little bit towards the floor, knowing that the earth holds us. Let's listen to these words of wisdom from Rumi. See what message they have for us today. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. With those words from Rumi to accompany us, let's enter this time of silence together now.
Beautiful music paid for us by Peter Crockford. So it's time for the address now, and this is um, a bit of a wordy address. And I thought it might be a good time to tell you all that you don't have to listen to a word of these addresses because you can read them later on the website. I think we've got a decade or more of um, service scripts there. So why don't you just rest back and think your own thoughts? It, it, I've called it Biblical Bad Women, this address, and I adapted that title from a book called Bad Girls of the Bible and What We Can Learn From Them by Liz Curtis Higgs. Curtis Higgs went on to write two further books called Slightly Bad Girls of the Bible and Really Bad Girls of the Bible. I, I'd give her a prize for entertaining book titles, but her books only came my way when I was reading some training material from the Unitarian Universalists over in the States. And the training was for ministers and it was about how to appeal to ordinary people in our services rather than going way over everybody's heads. And the example was given of somebody arriving new in a town, wondering which church to attend. And outside each church, there was a poster displaying the title of next Sunday's service. The Unitarian service was on consciousness. And the progressive Christians down the road were advertising bad girls of the Bible. And the question was asked, well, which would you choose to attend now? I know what a brainy lot you all are. So you'd probably all choose consciousness, wouldn't you? But I think in many of us, most of us even, there is a bit of an attraction to the bad and to the disreputable. And that's why the biblical writers, when telling a story involving a woman, if they needed to make her bad, well, they made her very, very bad indeed. Now, any of you who are already biblical scholars will know that women don't get many starring roles in either the Old or the New Testament. Hardly any of them are identified by name. Liz Curtis Higgs writes that more than 100 women are simply described in scriptures as daughter of, wife of, witch of, woman of, concubine of, widow of, nurse of queen of, 
and naturally mother of someone more famous than she is. So if I was giving a lecture now about the portrayal of women in the Bible, well, I'd put forward a feminist viewpoint. I'd argue that the multiple texts we've collected into one seeming book, the Bible, they were written down thousands of years ago by men in patriarchal times when women and children were regarded as possessions. They could be bought and sold like sheep, punished or even slaughtered as their owners thought fit. I'd suggest that we, we gain more by exploring women in the Bible through their historical context, but also by going further and considering their, their very existence in these stories as mythic rather than real. I'm not alone in doubting that some of the many, many women, the few women rather, mentioned in the Bible ever existed at all. Uh, their presence, their presence in the text is, is to make the point that the writers wanted to make. So I suggested in the Friday email advertising today's service that we make a list of women whose names we remember from the Bible. I wonder if, if any of you started on that task and how many you came up with. It's actually not straightforward to count those named in the Bible, but a conservative estimate would say that women are less of, than 15% of the named characters. And of those around 130 or so named women, well, we tend to remember the very good and the very bad. So we've got a few of these biblical women portrayed by artists to show you on slides now. And I wonder if you recognize any of them. Mm, well, here's Eve looking quite tempting and oh, how chaste Adam looks turning away. And here's Deborah, the Israelite judge, leader and prophet, a strong woman. And here's dear Esther, who used her so-called feminine powers of persuasion to save the Israelites. Mm, my favorite, Jael, with her tent peg, killing a Canaanite general. Here's marvelous Jezebel, a Phoenician queen who worshipped a faith different from the Israelites. And Mary Magdalene, an independent woman who recognized a message from Jesus. And a most gorgeous Delilah with a poor Sean Samson. So we may not remember the whole story or the context in which it was placed, but we humans, we tend to remember the names. It's worth for example, looking closely at that story of Samson and Delilah in the book of Judges and thinking about the names. This cannot be a true story, can it? Nobody could be that foolish as to give their secrets of their strength to a woman called Delilah. The very name in Hebrew means temptress, amorous one. And the biblical Delilah is secretly working as a spy for the Philistines. And we know what a dreadfully uncultured lot they were. 
Delilah manages to find out that Samson's strength lies in his long, uncut hair. And the Philistines, his hair having been cut, they gouge out his eyes and imprison him. But hair, of course, grows again. And Samson regains his strength and brings the mighty hall down on the Philistines, killing many of them and himself as well. Oh, it's a marvellously dramatic tale. It's beautifully told, and I don't believe a word of it. You could argue that it's one of many, many stories justifying the Israelites' invasion of other people's lands. You know the kind of line. Oh, these people, they're not cultured like us. The Lord has promised this land to us. It should now be ours. I'd say that the story and imagery of Samson and Delilah is within us at a mythic level. The idea of woman as temptress is pervasive in our culture, and we know how very damaging it can be, don't we? It's in the very first book of the Bible, isn't it? In the story of Adam and Eve, story from thousands of years ago. And it's still heard as a defense in rape trials to this day, I'm ashamed to say. We heard Pat earlier reading to us from the work of Joseph Campbell, who did so much to bring an awareness of the importance of myth to us today. If we don't name and explore certain myths, they can perpetuate and harm us and harm our societies. If we do have an understanding of the mythic, well, then we have some powerful tools for better understanding human existence. Back to Delilah, if we take our biblical studies a little further, there's even more to discover. That name, Delilah, can also hold another meaning. It's linked to the Hebrew word Leila, meaning night, and Samson means sun. So this story could also relate to the polytheistic religions of the Middle East, where a battle between day and night, sun and moon, was such a common theme. So this brings us to another important understanding about the purposes of the biblical writers. If we remember that the, much of the Hebrew scriptures, they were only written down once the people had been taken into exile in Babylon, when the priests collected the oral traditions of thousands of years into written form, lest they otherwise be lost. The Hebrew people were in danger of being assimilated into Babylonian culture, and so these written texts help preserve their religious tradition. The key distinction, of course, of which was that it was monotheistic, one God, Yahweh, distinct from the polytheistic religions all around the region. The Hebrew scriptures mark this important tradition, transition rather, from the worship of many gods to the worship of one God. Bear in mind as well that the old polytheistic religions had originally involved worship of the goddess, the supreme mother of all. And they'd been part of matriarchal cultures where inheritance had passed through the female rather than the male line. Oh, and then you may start to get a sense of why the Hebrew scriptures are not women friendly. There are bad girls in the Bible because male writers wanted to discredit women-centered societies and religions. They're not to be trusted, they're not acceptable, they're connected with witchcraft and other bad behaviors. I always remember an enlightened lecturer pointing out to us as students that 
Delilah would have had heroine status in the Philistine Bible. But we don't get to read a Philistine holy text because history, of course, is written by the winning side. For every woman portrayed in a poor light in the Bible, there is a subtext that paints a very different picture. But that subtext only really began to be revealed or noticed in the late 1800s. Here's a quotation from the writings of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a committed anti-slavery campaigner who in the 1890s, 1890s published the Women's Bible, which really marks the start of feminist biblical criticism. She wrote, when women understand that governments and religions are human inventions, that Bibles, prayer books, catechisms and encyclical letters are all emanations from the brains of man, they will no longer be oppressed by the injunctions that come to them with the divine authority of thus saith the Lord. Canton, um, Stanton really was one of the first people to say publicly that Bible texts are the word of men, not of God, an issue that is still current today, of course. Here's just one story from her really interesting life that I think is instructive. This is from a book by Anne Lodes called Searching for Lost Coins, and I'm quoting here. So Stanton had as a... Um, 17-year-old joined a church group to finance the education of a young minister. The women sewed, baked, brewed and stewed, held fairs and sociables, etc. And when the young man graduated, they bought him a black suit and a high hat and a cane, and they invited him to preach. And he chose as his text the line from 1 Tim Timothy, I suffer not a woman to speak in church. She and the other young women walked out of the church that day. That line of scripture and similar lines from other sacred texts, they are still used today as reason for women's inequality in our world. There is just still so much work to do, isn't there? Educations to be gained equalities to be campaigned for. And thank goodness that we are part of a Unitarian movement that strives towards equality for all and allows women to speak in church. I never forget the good fortune of my freedoms, nor all those who suffered in achieving them. Amen. And so there's a, another opportunity to sing again now. Um, and the, sing, the hymn that will uh, appear on our screens soon, it's called Lady of the Season's Laughter. It's not one that we often sing, and I'm not sure we even know the tune that well, but I really do like the words with their earth-centered focus and their feminine perspective on the changing of the seasons. See what you think.
So we've got a, a few brief announcements this morning. Thanks to Janine Powell and John Davis for hosting, to Pat Gregory for reading, and to Peter Crockford, Trevor Alexandra, and uh, David Kent for really great music. Uh, don't forget, we'll have a virtual coffee time after the service to chat together. I don't think we'll be in breakout rooms today. Um, and if that's not your thing, well, as I said at the start of the service, do get in touch, send an email if you'd like to introduce yourself. As a, it is a bit harder, isn't it, to get to know one another in an online service. And we'll be back uh, next week on Zoom at 10 a.m. when Jane Blackall will be here. Do feel free to share the link with your friends. Uh, as ever, there are a number of opportunities to connect congregationally in the week ahead. Coffee morning, 10.30 Tuesday, excellent conversation, guaranteed. Newcomers are welcome. Heart and Soul, our contemplative spiritual gathering, is on small acts, and that's tonight and Friday at 7 p.m. Even if you've um, never been before, it's an open gathering. Everyone's welcome, um, and it's fine to just come as a newcomer, but you do need to book in. And this congregation has very much a life beyond Sunday mornings. So we do encourage everyone to keep in touch during the week, drop each other a line. I know some people meet up for walks or have phone calls. It's good to keep in touch. And for those of you who find the natural world a source of your spiritual connection, do make a note of the next West London Green Spirit Group gathering, which is going to be on Zoom, Wednesday, the 22nd of September at 10.30 a.m., when we'll be celebrating the autumn equinox. We'll be harvesting our many sources of light to warm the autumn and winter. Um, as you'll have seen in recent Friday emails, our church committee is actively seeking more helpers to get involved in running the church behind the scenes. Lots of different ways to get involved, depending on how much energy and time you've got and what your particular skills and interests are. So do get in touch with Jane Blackall, our ministry coordinator, or John Humphreys, our chairperson, if you'd like to have a chat about how you might help this community flourish in the months and years ahead. And uh, we're going to move towards our closing words and music now. You might want to, if your device allows, um, move on to gallery view so that we can all see each other and get a sense of this gathered community. After my closing words, we'll be hearing another piece of music played by Peter Crockford and he's accompanying Trevor Alexander, who's singing Every Time I Feel the Spirit. And we're all hoping that you'll be feeling the spirit this day. And so, I extinguish this chalice flame, but not the warmth of this community. May we carry its warmth and its light to those who yearn for a sense of connection and belonging. And let's celebrate all that we are this day, the glorious and the petty, the inspirational and the mean, our complexities and our contradictions. And let's resolve perhaps to be more ourselves in the days ahead, revealing the richness of our being allowing others to know more of us so that we too 
may know more of them. Amen. Go well, all of you, and blessed be. Every time